Hello, and welcome to That's So Ravenloft, a podcast dedicated to 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons horror and dark fantasy gaming in the dread domains of Ravenloft and beyond. My name is Megan. My pronouns are she, her, and you can find me on Twitter at Miss Megan J. And here is my lovely and talented and brilliant co-host, Deanna. Hi, I'm Deanna. My pronouns are she, them. And if you want to follow my unhinged ramblings at Twitter, you can find me at Deanna Writes Inc. I-N-K. And if you're really lucky, you might find a, uh, a tweet from one of her ferrets that has run across her keyboard when she wasn't looking. Yeah, they do that. So if you ever just find like just crazy gibberish, there's like a 50% chance that it was the ferrets and not Deanna. On a 50% chance, I've been kidnapped, and I'm trying to signal for help. (laughs) Oh, I probably shouldn't have laughed at that, but... (laughs) (laughs) Because I was imagining your ferrets kidnapping you. That's why that was so funny to me. Little ferret bandits tying you to the the chair. Oh, that is the situation currently. I'm being held hostage. Send help. Okay, so uh, before we get into today's topic, I want to do a quick little shout out to a certain product on DMs Guild, which is close to my heart. The product is called Ravenloft Trinkets and Treasures. It is published by Jeff Stevens. And the reason that this particular supplement is so near and dear to my heart is that I worked on it. I wrote the sections for Night of the Walking Dead and the section for When Black Roses Bloom. It's all about different unique trinkets and uh, art- magical items, magical weapons, artifacts related to Ravenloft, specifically to the second edition modules from the 90s. Everything converted for 5e, and it's super fun and super neat, and I worked really hard on it. And it's only $5. So if you're interested, go check it out. I'll put a link for it in the show notes. Definitely, definitely buy it. But today, our topic is going to be a little bit different than our whole one episode that we've already done. It's going to be on the subject of everybody's favorite undead, vampires. And we are going to be discussing it from a more historical slash mythological context. Deanna, who is a brilliant researcher and who has done a ton of work on it, is going to be taking the lead. And she's going to be telling you the history of real-world vampires while I occasionally interject with Dungeons & Dragons-relevant quips and quotes and thoughts and hopefully don't drive her insane by interrupting her no no i grew up in the south i'm used to being interrupted so uh take it away whenever you're ready all right so the first thing i wanted to talk about was the fascinating etymological history of the word vampire because when i was in my undergrad i really wanted to minor in linguistics but if you wanted to minor in linguistics the classes were at like 6 a.m unless you majored in it so I didn't do that. I minored in mythology instead. Probably. Those both sound awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I like to say my minor is in dead religions. That's really good. Mine was in dead languages. So the first appearance of the word upir, which is what would later become the modern word vampire, is written in a document all the way back in the glorious year of 1047, specifically to insult a Russian prince. The term was Upir Lichi, which I'm going to apologize right up top. I don't speak ancient Romanian and I don't speak a lot of the languages that will be discussed later on. If I'm pronouncing things wrong, feel free to correct me. It will There's not hurt some, my feelings. We have a lot of ancient Romanian listeners who might be offended if you mispronounce anything in their language. It's true. This is about vampires. There could be, a, there there could could be, be actual vampires. Vampire. Yeah, there could be vampires listening. The term was Upir Lichi, I believe, and the language is no longer spoken in this way. The direct translation was unclear, but it mostly appeared to be a reference to being undead and evil. Sounds pretty, uh, sounds concise. I was, I was Googling this term after reading your, after reading your, uh, overview that you typed up. And they were talking about how during the time that this word appears, there was a lot of conflict between Christian, Christianity and pagans in the area and that they might have specifically been referring to a pagan of some sort with this that term. Defi- that definitely could be the case because there was a lot of strife in the Eastern European area, as we'll get into when I start mm-hmm. talking about good old Vlad. Plenty of strife. All the strife you can handle and more. And more. And then 
to get to a closer approximation to the word vampire that we know today, in 1734, there were just so many waves of what we dubbed vampire hysteria across all of Eastern Europe. Those were transmitted via transcripts of letters and documents through German into English, and we get vampire spelled with the Y. That's 1734, and I wrote down the different times of waves of vampire hysteria, mostly because it made me laugh. 1710, East Prussia. 15 years later, 1725, East Prussia again. And then 1725, 1730, Hungary had a little wave of vampire hysteria. Jump forward 20 years to 1750, East Prussia again again. Apparently, oh, East, East Prussia, get it together. East Prussia, apparently, vampires love it. What about, 17- West, what about West Prussia? They're fine. <laughs> No vampires there. And zombies over in West Prussia. That's for a different episode. 1756. I don't know if it's pronounced Wallachia or Wallachia. If you are familiar with Castlevania, that is where Dracula lives. I didn't know this was a real country. Uh, I thought it was made up for Castlevania. I thought that because (laughs) Wallachia no longer exists. It got consolidated into what is now modern. But yes, uh, I did have to learn that Wallachia was a real place. I think it's funny that like the the idea of waves of hysteria coming in these like periods of like 10, 15, 20 years, it's like their version of the satanic panic. You know, it's like panic. <laughs> it's just it's been happening, you know, we every every 20 years or so here in America in the modern day like uh people find some new thing to be all freaked out about. And it was I mean it's been it's been going on since the beginning of time. Yeah. People have always been panicky idiots. And then in 1772, there was a Russian vampire wave of hysteria. And I just find that list so funny because what is going on in Eastern Prussia in the 1700s? I just imagine like people running around with stakes and hammers all the time, just like staking everybody they see, just like running around being like, oh, vampire, like mobs with pitchforks and torches like you see in old movies. The first occasion we have more closely to the modern day word vampire is in 1748 so between the hungarian and the third east prussian wave of vampire hysteria heinrich august ossenfelder wrote the first what we consider the first modern vampire poem der vampire 1819 john polidori publishes the vampire once again spelled with the y the first vampire story in english in 1872 we got a camilla which is a very famous vampire short story and then finally we get to 1897 where my favorite man bram stoker publishes dracula that's sort of the evolution of how we got the term vampire and how it became more in the mainstream i like it when little kids refer to vampires as as draculas like uh love it it's so cute (laughs) be like they'll they'll see a vampire in a movie and be like it's a dracula you're wrong. I've started doing that with the word Satan, like referring to <laughs> devils and demons as Satans rather than Satan as a single figure. I don't know why. I just, it just, I just think it's funny personally. Yes. You're right. I did, a, <laughs> I did a little digging on these, uh, these literary sources that you mentioned. I've read The Vampire, I've read Carmilla, and I've read uh, Dracula, but I'd never re- read this poem called Der, Der Vampire. Um, by our good friend Heinrich August Ossenfelder. So I looked it up and I found a uh, I found a translation of it in English. I can't vouch for the correctness of this translation, but I want to read the second half to you. <gasps> and, Please and do. To the audience, because this is this is pretty pretty sexy stuff. Oh yeah. Okay, here we go. And as softly thou art sleeping, to thee shall I come creeping. And thy life's blood drain away. And so shalt thou be trembling, for thus I be kissing. And death's threshold thou it be crossing, with fear in my cold arms. And last shall I thee question, compared to such instruction, what are a mother's charms? So that's pretty horny stuff, right? I mean, so like, horny. <laughs> softly thou art sleeping to thee. I shall come creeping. I'm going to start saying that to people. Whenever I'm trying to like seduce anybody, I'm going to say those words to them. 
Yes, you can definitely use vampire mythology and literature to seduce people. I couldn't find an exact date as to when vampires became really horny, but they are so horny. I mean, this is pretty horny right here. <laughs> when what 1748? I mean, that's pretty that's pretty racy stuff for 1748. That's super racy for 1748. <laughs> that's basically porn for 1748. <laughs> like, oh my god, they mentioned kissing and oh, unmarried wow. people being in the same room together. I cannot believe the salaciousness. <laughs> the story of the vampire by John Polidori. It's a good story. You can really see how Dracula or the, the archetype that Dracula would come to embody sort of comes from this story. But one of the things that's really interesting about it is that the genesis of this story is the same as the genesis of Frankenstein. Oh, so have you heard the, uh, the famous story about, um, Mary, Mary Wollstonecraft, who would become Mary Shelley. Um, no, yes, Mary Wollstonecraft, who would become Mary Shelley. She's at the, um, at a lake in Switzerland with her lover, Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, and John Polidori. And they're, they are basically stuck inside because it's raining all summer long. So they decide to tell each other these ghost stories. And Mary Shelley creates Frankenstein based on the story that she told at that party or that get together. And John Polidori would write the vampire based on the story that actually the story that Byron told uh, John Polidori took it and made it his own. So those two, those two books, the vampire and Frankenstein both come from this same event. I did not know that. That's super fascinating. I mm -hmm. knew the story of Shelley and old timey word salon of writers being stuck inside and telling spooky stories. I didn't know that modern vampire literature and modern construct literature came from the same place. Yeah, the vampire that's in the story, Lord Ruthven, is supposed to be based on Lord Byron. So in a sense, the sort of aristocratic vampire we get comes from John Polidori's sort of satire of Lord Byron. That's awesome. It's a good story. It's, it's pretty scary, too. I know our listeners are spooky aficionados, but I wanted to sort of collect general common characteristics vampires share because vampires super very wildly and we'll get into that most modern vampires uh they look fairly humanoid except they're generally really pale they got the sharp teeth they tend to be cold to the touch and only come up at night they sleep in coffins and there's some debate about whether or not they need dirt from their original gravesite or not it really depends on what version you're looking at i prefer to like I prefer the version where they need grave dirt. I don't know why. It just seems more interesting to me. It, it nerfs them a little bit. It's certainly a good literary device. The vampire can't just be everywhere. It does give the the human heroes sort of something to a way to, to to focus their energies. Like that's what happens in Dracula. They know that Dracula has to go back to one of his one of his hidey holes where his grave dirt is, and so that's sort of how they're able to corner him. Like they destroy his hidey holes until he's forced to flee England and return back to Transylvania. Often in media and folklore, they subsist off of some kind of life force. It's usually blood in Western mythology. Now, do you, do you, have you watched what we do in the shadows, the TV show? I want to, I do not have the streaming service on which it is available. Mm, there's a, there's an energy vampire in it called, uh, named Colin Robinson. And he is just like one of, he just has to be one of the funniest vampire characters of all time. He's just like really boring, but also really obnoxious at the same time. And just like sucks the energy out of anybody that he talks to. <laughs> and that's how he feeds on people. It's, that's amazing. But, but the way he does it, the actor who performs him is just, it's so, it's so funny. Everybody oh, should watch that show. Especially you. One of my favorite things that I've ever come across, and I will not promote. Uh, the place with which I found this because I don't support the person who does it, but I did find a psychic vampire repellent mist, and I very much wanted to purchase it just for, just to like spray it at obnoxious people. Go away. Now I'm curious. You're going to have to tell me off the air who this was. I will. I will 100% do that. <laughs> Maybe I could buy some. I don't think I know any psychic vampires. I mean, in a sense, like the internet is one big psychic vampire. Like, 
Oh my God. Yes. Facebook. You could say like the, the, the algorithm of social media is probably the, it the greatest psychic vamp, most powerful psychic vampire that's ever existed. It does suck the life out of me daily. <laughs> it's like if Skynet, Skynet from Terminator was a vampire, it would be Facebook. Yes, it would be. <laughs> Vampires often have supernatural powers, including supernatural strength, flight, or levitation. Uh, the source I was reading did separate those. I wasn't sure why, but hypnotic powers, so compulsion. The ability to sort of make their prey stay still while they feed, acute night vision, and transformation. Once again, kind of depends on what source you're reading when it comes to transformation. Bats, super common. Wolves, also common. This is a thing sometimes. I saw one, I read one uh, YA vampire where they could turn into sharks. Oh, nice. I don't know how accurate that is (laughs) to anything, but it seemed cool. Oh, that makes sense. I mean, if you're a vampire that lives like on an island or near the coast and there's a lot be... of fishermen, why wouldn't you turn into a shark and go after them? A shark? <laughs> why would you turn into a shark just because you could? You wouldn't. Oh, I forgot. You don't like the ocean. Maybe maybe you wouldn't I'm... turn into a shark. If I could be a shark, I feel like I'd have a chance. Just <laughs> me as a human in the ocean. I have no chance. So I want you to think about that. If ever you find yourself thinking about going into the ocean again, not only are there sharks in the ocean. Potentially, there's vampires transformed into sharks in the ocean. Is this just going to be a running thing where you make me more and more afraid of the ocean? <laughs> you may want to only go swimming. Yes, I mean, just make sure you only go swimming during the daytime. So no vampire sharks can get you or shark vampires. I don't know what the proper etymology is. But, but then there's just regular sharks. That doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> yeah, but most regular sharks aren't dangerous. It's just just the dangerous ones that are dangerous. Weaknesses to vampires. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> I was just going to talk about the difference between levitation and flight. Oh, go for it. Please do. Well, I, d- I don't know what the specific definition. I imagine levitation is kind of like you can move up and down. But if you're um, flying, <laughs> you can kind of move like Superman, like in any direction. What's the difference between like being a rook and being a queen on the chessboard? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to make the nerdiest comparison of all time, sure. I enjoy chess. <laughs> no, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Either you can move left and right or you can move in any direction. Forward, what is it? Left, right, forward, back. And then the queen can and move in any direction. Yes. Vampire weaknesses tend to include garlic, sunlight, holy symbols, often crosses. But I think that's a Western thing where Christianity is rampant. Holy water, occasionally they can't cross running water. That seems to be, that people seem to go back and forth on whether or not they can cross bridges and stuff. A wooden stake to the heart, and my favorite thing about that is if you've ever seen Hotel Transylvania, human character Johnny is talking to Dracula and he goes, will a wooden stake to the heart kill you? And Dracula turns and goes, who wouldn't that kill? And I think <laughs> about that daily. <laughs> it was like... Oh yeah, no, that does. Yeah, no, that that's just a that's murder. That's a good point. And cutting off the head. Yeah, like no, that, that, that would... will that just kills you, <laughs> vampire or not. There's very few things that can survive having their head cut off. And uh, fire, fire will kill them as well. But again, few things are fire resistant. Now we'll get into where I'm really going to apologize to listen. I have a small collection of multicultural vampires, so creatures in across the world that are sort of put into the vampire folklore, whether or not they're technically quote-unquote vampires, you can debate in the comments if you really want to. But Be- Before you before you get into the get into the multi- multicultural vampires, I was looking at the stat block for just this straight-up regular old vampire. Oh, yes, in Dun- please. In Dungeons & Dragons, so not... I mean, there's a couple different kinds of vampires. There's like vampires and Nosferatus and there's other kinds. And there's specific named vampires like Strahd. But just a regular plain vampire has a lot of weaknesses. They have like a whole list of weaknesses uh, in their stat block. Um, And those include can't enter a residence without an invitation from one of the occupants. A vampire takes 20 acid damage if it ends its turn in running water. That's kind of like the D and D equivalent of not being able to cross the uh, not being able to cross the running water. I think that must be like a, a biblical illusion of some sort. Like water represents purity, so 
vampires I actually can't have, cross it. I have an answer for that later on. Oh, okay. Stake to the heart. Vampires in D&D are actually paralyzed by a stake to the heart. It doesn't kill them. It just like, uh, just it paralyzes, incapacitates them. And then the sunlight hypersensitivity, they take 20 radiant damage if they start their turn in the sunlight. And they have disadvantage on attack rolls and ability checks. So, and they have dark vision. So a lot of those, those sort of classic vampire weaknesses that you just described, they all apply to, to vampires in D&D. They can't fly though. Not the, the regular kind of vampire can't just fly on its own, although it can transform into a bat or a or a wolf. I mean, transforming into a bat is kind of like flying. Bats can fly. That's true. They sure can. Doesn't say anything about garlic, though. I know about vampires and D&D and garlic. I need the stat block for garlic. <laughs> we, um, I know we, we talked about Monster Squad in, a, in our last episode, and I'm going to make you watch it eventually. But there's a scene in Monster Squad when uh, they're fighting Dracula and the kid has a slice of has a slice of pizza that has garlic on it. So he like smushes it against Dracula's face and it burns him. That's amazing. (laughs) If you ever find yourself fighting a vampire and there's pizza nearby, it can be used as a weapon. And it's a weapon against my own health, but. (laughs) Garlic is very good for you. I don't know about the rest of the pizza. (laughs) Oh, God, no. But garlic is good for you. It's good for your heart. Unlike a wooden steak, it's good for your heart. No. Once again, (laughs) that's, that's just murder. What if you made a steak out of garlic and then stabbed somebody through the heart? Would that kill them? Yeah, I think that still kills them. I think it's still, uh, <laughs> I think the puncturing of the heart is what does it, not necessarily the material. Okay, so let's talk about, uh, please continue with your multicultural vampires, because this is really cool. I really like this section from your from your outline. Thank you. I will not be talking about chupacabras uh, today. What? Maybe one day. Not today. If you're interested in hearing my take on chupacabras... The other podcast I work on did an episode on them. I was the lead researcher, and mostly it just made me sad. Shout it out. Do you, can you say the name of that podcast? I can. Uh, the Chaluminati podcast, available on all your podcast apps. I don't yeah. know offhand the number that the Chupacabra episode was on. Yeah, that's a pretty rad podcast, so everybody should go check it out. Sure. And support Deanna, too. Support me. All right, so I started in the African area. Um, specifically, this is called the i apologize so hard asan basam and it's found in the folklore of the ashanti people of ghana in western africa i didn't get a ton of information about this one but what i got was it said to have iron teeth which is new pink skin red hair and it sits in the tops of trees and it has hooked feet so it dangles its legs and as people walk under it it sort of grabs them and pulls them up that's so like, terrifying. <laughs> that's such an awesome description of a vampire. I love the the iron teeth. That's like the best detail. That's so cool. That's so evocative. And like the hooked feet. Like, what does that even? I don't even know exactly what hooked feet means, but it's cool. Just like I was you're just walking along through the trees, minding your own business. Dang, hook feet got you. Uh, I thought of uh, there's a creature in I don't know if it's the Pathfinder. Bestiary or a D&D bestiary, but it's essentially a weasel with knife feet and it's got like curved blades for feet. And that's what I was imagining is they just grab you. Right, then I moved to the Philippines with the Aswang, I think is how you pronounce it, which weirdly has a lot of popularity in modern culture, especially in the sort of resurgence of folklore, I guess, TV shows like, what am I thinking of? I think Supernatural has one. I'm trying to think. Oh, um, it was called Grimm. Grimm has an Oswald in it. Well, any of those like monster of the week shows, like Supernatural, they're Grimm. Like, I guess they, they need a new monster every week. So they're always diving into all this old folklore from different places. And that's pretty cool. I like that. I like when I get to learn a new thing. This is a Filipino vampire-like creature. Often they're a beautiful woman during the day. And at night, they turn into a large bird or that. I couldn't get a definite source a big flying creature they like to land on roofs of houses and very mosquito like they have a long tubular proboscis so they just sort of stick in and then they suck and then they go on but also there's a weird sort of variant of oswang that are known to suck fetuses from the bellies of pregnant women or amniotic fluid depending on uh the folklore you're looking at which I thought was one of the most terrifying things I've ever. Well, this is probably one of those like when 
cultures come up with mythologies to explain certain things that can't be understood. So maybe yeah. like if a if a woman has a uh, a miscarriage or something, they didn't know how to explain why that would happen. So they come up with this creature that sticks its proboscis up and yeah. I was about to get way more descriptive, but I don't think I will. Just leave it at that. I, I found that very interesting and also very disturbing. And it's something I think about a lot. You think about vampires with proboscises sucking out fetuses a lot? Yeah. Did you do that fear. before you before you read about this too? <laughs> I've actually known about the Oswong for uh, a while because this is going to surprise no one. I listened to scary stories to go to sleep. And mm. one of them was an account of someone who visited someone. And I wish you could shout out who, uh, where I got this story, but I don't remember. I was like half asleep at the time, but it was someone who visited a friend in the Philippines and they had a relative pregnant and Oswald, they like were trying to block the windows and make sure there was no holes. So an Oswong couldn't attack them and an Oswong did. And the doctor was like, there's no baby in there hmm. anymore. And they're like, it was a wild story. And it's stuck in my head for a long time. And I wish I knew where I heard it, but I do not. There's a movie of some sort, although I don't think it's, it may be just a coincidence. It might not be specifically about Aswang, but it's about like, because I think it's an Indonesian movie where there's some kind of vampire-like creature who does that to a pregnant woman. I don't know if it's exactly the same creature or if it's just, both have that in common but yeah i mean it was super gross in the movie i imagine the idea believing that that might happen to you is also got to be pretty terrifying uh but if i can just radically tone shift for a second after all this please grossness do. and horror <laughs> <laughs> please do <Don't> shift. <laughs> in in one of my campaigns that i'm running there are uh there are kender vampires you know kender i was about to ask you if you know what a kender is of course you know what a kender is you play one. <gasps> i do know what a kender is <laughs> So your Kender is very restrained compared to most Kenders. Most Kenders are super annoying uh, <laughs> in Dragonlance. And so for my vampire Kender, instead of having them transform into bats, they transform into big mosquitoes. And they have, <laughs> I love and it. They, they drink blood with the proboscis. So. We go away from that. We move into something that might be familiar to people who play Dungeons and Dragons. The, I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly. Zhangxi. Sounds right to me. Well, I mean, I couldn't do it any better, so let's go with that. So Zhangxi, if you are unfamiliar, uh, come from Chinese folklore, and they're created when someone dies super violently, and if they're left unburied for too long or buried improperly, the spirit becomes angry and restless, and they can become a Zhangxi. Unlike a lot of the Western sort of modern Slavic vampires, they tend to rely on viciousness and brute strength to capture victims. They don't have any supernatural abilities at first. They can gain them over time, but it's more of a learning process. Like if you're a Slavic vampire, you get bitten and then you get all your cool powers right away. Like instant gratification. If you're a Zhangxi, you kind of got to earn it. But you got to work at it. You got to work for it. <laughs> yeah, there's there's Zhangxi in the new in the newest Ravenloft book that came out in 20, 2021. 2020 i forget which year that was i know i said it in the last episode now i forget what it was but the newest ravenloft book has zhang shi as as like a monster that you can use there's a whole a uh, there's a whole like chinese folk horror setting in the newest in the newest ravenloft book and the zhang shi are kind of like the central monsters of that so we'll get to those over time the art is super cool maybe i'll post the art maybe i'll use it for like the podcast cover art for this episode because it's pretty cool Ooh. and finally we get to malaysian vampires so i am a hundred percent not gonna pronounce this correctly. Langsyar? Langsuyar? They're Malaysian vampire-like creatures, and they're once again, we're back to the whole disgusting, sad, if a woman dies in childbirth, there's the potential that they will become one of these creatures for within the first forty days after her death. And this is an interesting one, because to prevent this, there are ways to stop this from happening. Uh family members will fill their mouth with beads. Apparently, to stop a banshee-like screech and to keep them from flying, they put eggs under her arms and will pierce her palms with needles, I guess, because in this case, the flapping of the arms is what gives you flight, and they don't want to break the egg, I guess. They can be tamed or domesticated. If you catch them and you cut off their hair and nails, 
and then you put them in a hole in their neck, they can just go back to their normal life. And according to folklore, there are stories of women who were Langsyar and this happened, they were caught and the fingernail thing happened and they just went on to like live normal lives, get married, do normal stuff, which is fascinating to me. Are you ready for the most helpful part of this show, which is what to do if you, yes, you are being attacked by a vampire? Yes, please. I'm very con- This is this is something. So you, I'm I'm very concerned about being attacked by a vampire. Everyone should be. Have you been having upsetting dreams wherein a recently deceased person is haunting you? Yes. That could be because that person has risen from the dead, become a vampire, and is looking to make you, yes, you, you specifically, Megan. A member of their vampire coven. I mean, that's okay. That seems like kind of a cool thing to be, I guess. If they were just going to kill me, that would be bad. But if they're going to make me a vampire too, then I'm all about it. Well, if you're not like Megan and you don't want to be a vampire, your first order of business is to exhume the course and look for these signs to see if they've become a vampire. Have their fingernails grown? Do they look plump and well-fed? Maybe even healthier than they did in life? Is there blood on their mouths? What about scratch marks inside the coffin? Is the corpse twisted in an unnatural position? You answered yes to any of the above questions. I'm sorry to say that you are being hunted by a vampire. But Deanna, is there anything I can do? There is! To remove the vampire scourge plaguing you, you must, one, remove the head of the vampire. Two, fill the mouth with garlic bulbs. Three, put a stake through its heart. Then you could re-enter the corpse. If symptoms continue, repeat the above steps to anyone else who has died recently until the symptoms stop. Okay. Um, do I need to put the garlic bulbs in the mouth before or after I cut the head off? Or does it not matter? I think you should put them in after you cut the head off because then you can sort of put some in the neck hole too just to be safe. That's a good idea. Yeah. You, you want to cram some down into the neck hole because you never know. Alternatively, if you want to be really sure, you could also light the body on fire. Well, I do want I think it's best. It's better to be safe than sorry. So you might as well just fill all the holes with garlic, set the whole thing on fire, and then rebury the charred corpse. This just sounds like a a lovely family outing. It's something (laughs) the whole community can get behind. (laughs) And it super was. All right. But seriously, what is a van? So... The signs I've given you are more or less not actually vampire signs. It's more or less a fundamental misunderstanding of the decomposition process. Shockingly, uh, people in the 1700s didn't know a lot about what happens after your body is deceased because they would just put you in the ground and that was it. They didn't really know what happened after you died. So the thing a lot of people, a lot of texts will point to is their fingernails will grow. And that's not true. During the decomposition process, the skin of your nail beds will recede, so it makes it look like your nails are better. People will point to a healthy complexion or being large or well-fed. That's just because when you die, your body makes gases, and back then embalming wasn't the same idea it is today. So they just left everything in there and buried you. So it would produce gas, which would make your body bloat, which would give the impression that they're healthy and wealthy. Uh, this also is a lot of people, a lot of texts will say they're, the body groaned and that's proof that they were a vampire. Once again, it's just decomposition gases escaping and making weird sounds. Blood on the mouth, once again, embalming, not super a thing yet. They just sort of left the blood in the body, which today, everything is removed and the body is embalmed. Back then, just put the body in the coffin in the hole. Blood would sort of bloop out of the mouth. They would also stab them and blood would come out. It's like, bloop. yeah, you left the blood in there. Is that a scientific was- term, bloop? Yes, it is. It's very scientific, <laughs> Megan. I am a consummate researcher. <laughs> um, sometimes they'd see scratches on the inside of the coffin or the body would be in a weird, weird position. That's because they weren't really great at telling when people were dead. So they would bury you alive and you would try and escape and you would panic and twist and scratch the coffin. 
that that's just a panic response and figured out when people are really dead, at least mostly. That's even more horrific than it actually being a vampire. Yeah, that means it can happen to you. <laughs> also, grave robbers can come in and just like toss your body, and then you end up in a weird position. Like, oh, they moved after death. No, mm-hmm. someone just stole their stuff. My biggest question when it comes to these ancient vampires is they would open the coffin and see all these things, but why was their assumption like, oh yeah, clearly they're getting out, going about their business, and then they get back in the hole and they somehow get the dirt back open. That's <laughs> a-okay. I don't, that's the one leap of logic I don't understand. I've heard stories where the vampire that like appears walking about the town or like attacking people is more like a spirit than a physical body there's um, definitely that doesn't explain how the level. blood gets into the corpse but i mean this was i mean this was old times people i mean people are stupid now they were even stupider then <laughs> <laughs> i just don't think it ever occurred to anybody to, i mean there wasn't we take for granted nowadays the idea of hey i have a theory let's try to prove it if it doesn't work then it's not true yeah they didn't think that way back in the old days they just started with the theory and that was it. That was it. Mm-hmm. There's some, not the word there, there's some hypothesis that uh, vampire myths come from a sort of under- misunderstanding of how illness works. Because there would be like clusters in small communities or close families where people would all die at the same time. Oh, clearly they were afflicted by vampirism. No, they just all had the same illness at the same time because they were close together and mm-hmm. they all got sick and died at the same time. It's not vampires. But a theory I hadn't come across, and I did when I was doing my research for this, uh, rabies could be a, a cause of the vampire myth. So rabies, A, number one, is terrifying. Mm-hmm. But it's contracted by biting, much like vampirism. It's commonly spread by, I saw both bats and wolves. I have personally don't know the stats on wolves and rabies, but I know bats for sure. So spread by bats, associated with vampires vampirism because irregular sleep patterns such as becoming nocturnal like a vampire and it's known to cause a bloody froth at the mouth so blood on the mouth again also it causes extreme hydrophobia so someone might might run across running water that's interesting i Uh, had never heard this theory and it makes so much sense that's how cujo got rabies that's yeah he got bit by a bat. That's a really common way to get rabies. Terrifying. Uh, and why I don't go camping is because it you might not even notice you've been bitten by a bat. And then all of a sudden rabies. You know where there's no bats? If you say the ocean. <laughs> also, that's not even true. There are vampires squid, Megan. <laughs> but they're not bats. I don't think vampire squid have rabies. I don't think squids can get rabies. Oh, that's another thing I need to worry about. Can squids get rabies? <laughs> and if you've heard the myth or the hypothesis that the v- myth of vampirism was started by Porphyria, yeah, I uh, I, I'm looking at your notes here, and I ha- and it it appears to me as if a a certain biochemist came up with this theory in 1985. What was the name of that biochemist? <laughs> David Dolphin. <gasps> oh my god. Sounds like a uh, vampire dolphin trying to uh trying to divert suspicion. Yeah, so 1985 biochemist David Dolphin or Dauphin, not entirely sure. No, it's definitely Ste- Dolphin. <laughs> Sus. Uh he supposed a link between a rare blood disorder known as Porphyria and the myth of vampire. I looked into Porphyria, and it is incredibly complicated, so Apologies that I don't understand biochemistry, and feel free to correct me if I get something wrong. But in 1985, the treatment for porphyria was by infusing a sufferer with heme, which the best I can understand is your body produces hemoglobin. But before it becomes hemoglobin, it's heme, and you would infuse the heme into someone and it would uh, it would reduce their symptoms. Mm-hmm. That's what they did in Dracula. Van Helsing gives Lucy a blood transfusion. And they, I don't think they knew about blood typing in, in the book. or I don't think they knew about blood typing at the time. So he just like grabs whoever's <laughs> nearby and <laughs> takes their blood and puts it into Lucy. And surprise, surprise, she dies. Yes. If you know anyone suffering a 
make sure don't test anything first. Just just start using. <laughs> just go. The Delphine supposed that the link was, oh, people were drinking blood because they had nefaria. It's kind of debunked later because it turns out that that's not how that works and drinking blood would have done nothing. And only between one and a hundred people out of every 50,000 are diagnosed with porphyria. So I'm not sure how the math correlates between the amount of vampires in history and the amount of people who are logically diagnosed with porphyria per year. Maybe there was an outbreak of porphyria in East Prussia in the 1700s. <laughs> every 20 years. <laughs> every 20 years, yeah. Well, you know, you get you, the a person grows to adulthood. They get their porphyria, they have a baby, they turn into a vampire, baby grows up, then they turn into a vampire. It's perfectly logical. Everything I just said makes sense. Everything you just said was totally <laughs> normal and a real thing. So we come to, wait, are vampires real? No, of course not. Oh, <laughs> no, of okay. course not. Much of our vampire folklore does come from a kernel of truth, and there are several historical figures that became the founders of what Western vampire mythology became a number one a mr vlad dracula and here's a fun thing about dracula his name actually just means son of dracul which his dad was vlad dracul so he's just vlad son of dracul mm -hmm. not nearly as interesting as you might think dracul <laughs> kind of translates to dragon and or monster once again this is sort of an ancient romanian translated through i think german into english so the translation is interesting i tried to look into vlad he was also known as vlad tepes which translates to vlad the impaler we all kind of know the story he impaled people and he was known for eating while he watched them die essentially i tried to look into his family tree but it turns out his dad vlad dracul had six kids only three names he had three kids with one woman, named them, it was like two sons and a daughter, named them Vlad, Mercia, and I forgot the girl's name. I think she died. She, he married someone else, had two sons and a daughter, would just name them the same thing. <laughs> well, you don't so, want to have to remember a whole, you don't want to have to remember six names. That's a lot of names. But he was born somewhere between 1428 and 1431. Or not really sure on the dates was he died somewhere between 1476 and 1447, and he was active between 1448 and 1477. His story is very, very bare bones. His story is he was the son of a the leader of Wallachia. His father was murdered. He was abducted essentially by Hungarians. The Hungarians raised him. Once he was old enough, he mounted an incredibly vicious revenge against the Hungarians. He took back Wallachia and he held it for essentially his entire adulthood. And historians aren't really sure, but he dies because he decides for reasons unsure of history anymore to attack a neighboring territory. So people aren't really sure why he did it, whether or not he just got greedy and decided he wanted it, or maybe he was just getting old and his decision-making skills weren't what they used to be and he thought this figure of uh vlad the impaler is very interesting because i've heard him described as like you know his enemies say he's you know so evil and so cruel but from what i understand in romania he's like a hero yeah because he took back uh what would become romania which is wallachia and a few surrounding territories he took it back Hungarian. like this is mine it's my right it's my family's ancestral home and it's mine now and he took it back and he held it. Yeah. So, I mean, he's kind of a, I mean, if, if the stories of his cruelty are, you know, if, if half of them are true, he was probably a pretty bad guy. But, you know, if he protected his, protected his country, he couldn't have been, wasn't all bad. There is um, a very circular Venn diagram of people who are incredible warlords and tacticians and also incredibly cruel. <laughs> there is a, uh, when you were doing your research, did you see the wood cutting of him where he's like sitting and eating dinner and there's all the I corpses did. around him? I did when see I was, that one. so just to give you a little insight into why I am the way I am, when I was a little kid, I must have been in like elementary school. I had a book that was like 
it was like vampire stories and that woodcutting was in that book i remember that from when i was a little kid imagining tiny megan seeing that and it's like ah yes i will base my entire life around <laughs> it's like oh impaling people that never would have occurred to me never would um, have occurred to me <laughs> there's actually there's actually a ravenloft um there's a ravenloft character inspired by vlad the impaler in the second in the second edition he's called vlad drakoff and he's basically just a vlad the impaler like a, a warlord type of character and then in fifth edition for fifth edition he decided to live his truth as a woman and he became vladeska drakovna so vlad drakoff from second edition to fifth edition is a woman now but still basically the same character still still a warlord still impales people and uh because i'm a giant nerd i got excited when he went by Vlad Tepes, or he was called Vlad Tepes, because that's the last name in Castlevania. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Castlevania anime that I... <laughs> yeah. There's a novel called The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova, I think it is, um, that sort of draws a parallel between... It, it's it's a fiction, obviously, but it's like, connects Vlad the Impaler. It's like a story of Vlad the Impaler as a real vampire, and like this historian is trying to who makes the connection that Vlad the Impaler really was a vampire. It's a really good book. Moving on to uh, Elizabeth Bathory. She is very well known today for bathing in the blood of her young females to remain young. But much like the gif, the reaction gif you see online, that was a fucking lie. Mm -hmm. She was noble. So we have a little bit more of a pinpoint date on birth and death. She was a countess. She was born August 7th or thereabouts, 1560, died August 21st, 1641. And while the bathing in the blood thing became what she was known for, uh, she was cruel. She definitely tortured her servant. She was married to a man for a while who they did it together as, I guess, a couple's bonding activity where they would torture their servants together. He died. She found a woman who would also do it with her. That's what they did. She went on trial for 650 pounds based on a ledger she kept. I think she sort of ran a boarding school for women and then was horrible. So they had an account of how many women were there and then just didn't go anywhere else. She was imprisoned in her castle, which I always found interesting. They just sort of put her in a room in her It's like, this is where you live now. But... When I was able to gather researching her, the trial was more or less to take away her land as a countess, and I think she was a single woman in power, and the cruelty to servant girls was just sort of a reason to take away her land at the time, I don't think. I don't think any of the white men in history really cared. There's a... Uh, I, I agree with you. I don't... This means she murdered 600 people. That's highly, highly doubtful. I think somebody would have noticed 600 people going missing before, before she was arrested. I think it's just, yeah, they wanted her land. I think she owed money to the king or the, the king owed money to her or whatever. So he's like, Hey, you know, why don't I just come up with these BS charges or why don't I take this, this accusation and blow it way out of proportion and then we'll get her executed and then I can have all her stuff. I feel like in, in, in history, whenever somebody is charged or found guilty of just like these insane accusations, probably wasn't really true. We definitely have like evidence that she did torture people, especially with her husband. But I think the not if it's true, is wild. And the bathing in the blood thing came about in the 1720s when someone, because after her trial and her death, kind of went unnoticed for a while. She, no one was talking about her because it was forbidden. No one was talking about her, and then we get to the 1720s, and someone, I don't remember his name offhand, but there was a historian who was like, well, what if I just looked into her? And somewhere along the line thought that that made sense, that she bathed in the blood of her servants' girls to stay youthful. But it's kind of accepted today that that's not a real thing, despite the rumor persisting. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Elizabeth Bathory defender, so this is the hill that I will die on. For no particular reason. Just the men, the greedy, powerful men in charge don't like seeing a woman who's because her husband died. And so she would have been like ruling her her land in her own right. And they don't like that. And they got to take it away. Just like uh, just like Rhaenyra in 
House of the Dragon, if I, if you want a contemporary reference. And uh, here is my modern Elizabeth Bathory fact. Uh, I learned about her when I was probably fifteen, and I watched a film, and I don't remember what the film was called, but it was Frankie Mu- Frankie Muniz was in it, and it was a you die in the game, you die in real life style movie, and Elizabeth Bathory was the villain. Oh my goodness. I think she's a villain in, in one of the Castlevania games, too. I forget which wouldn't, one, though. It wouldn't surprise me. There are a couple of accounts that her main historical account is, I believe, called Buddy Countess. Mm-hmm. And there's some evidence to believe that uh, Stoker took some inspiration from her mythology. Interesting. Look she must have had see. really bad perfir- perfuria she needed to bathe so, in water every day. So bad. <laughs> She was just so, trying to survive. It shows an evil. She just needed blood in. to live. Moving on to what I consider not not real vampires, but more interesting cases that sort of got buried in history. No pun intended? Question mark. No pun intended. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so Peter Bogoyevich, which I'm so proud I learned how to pronounce that. He was born in 1662 and. Or thereabouts. He was, um, the next two people I'm going to talk about were Serbian peasants. So their birth and death is either not known or a thereabouts. He died 1725. Uh, but the interesting thing is his active period of quote unquote vampirism was, uh, 1725 to 1840. Hmm. That's quite a long time to be a vampire. I mean, I guess if you're an, an immortal vampire, it's, it, I guess if you're, if you're immortal, it's actually not, not long. It's not even a hundred years. So the reason we know about Mr. Bogoyevich is a man, at least I presume a man, Marquis de Argen, Argen. Again, mm-hmm. I don't speak, uh, Serbian, Turkish, Romanian. I don't speak any of them. I think that's French. I don't speak French either. <laughs> <laughs> Shocking no one. <laughs> He wrote a letter reporting the tale of Bogoyevich, and that got translated into English. So Bogoyevich was a normal person for most of his life until he died. And then three days after he died, at the age of 62, so he lived a good life, he apparently walked into his house and asked his son for a meal. And his son was like, didn't you die three days ago? (laughs) (laughs) And Peter evidently must have been like yeah and because the son gave him a meal and then he left <laughs> you know you know who else died and then came back three days later you say jesus <laughs> jesus <laughs> are you trying to imply that jesus was a vampire that's a very controversial stance um i can neither confirm nor deny my belief that jesus was a vampire. <laughs> but we drink his blood he's a reverse oh. vampire he did you do I'm just thinking about Midnight Mass, which is really good. <laughs> uh, two days later, Bogoyevich came back to his house, asked his son for food, and his son was like, no, this is weird. <laughs> Dad. Dad, you're dead. <laughs> the next day, his son was found dead. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Which, once again, biblical. You're supposed to obey your parents, even if yeah, they really. died five days ago. doesn't stop when they die always obey and then shortly after that nine people in the village began to suffer from extreme exhaustion allegedly from the loss of blood but this is like serbia in the 1700s so it really could have been anything they were plagued by nightmares of bogoyevich biting them on the neck and drinking blood all of them died they exhumed bogoyevich's body he exhibited all the vampire symptoms, which we know are just what happened, dying or dead. They put a stake in his heart, garlic in his mouth, put him back, and that was basically it. Um, none of the other dead people ever expressed vampiric symptoms, but apparently the Marquis learned about this and thought it noteworthy enough to write in his letters, and they got translated into English. And this is sort of where we get a lot of the modern ideas of vampire. Yeah, that's a fun story. I like the idea of him coming back and asking his son for food. It's, like, hey. <laughs> it's even funnier that his son says no. Like <laughs> The first time his son was like, all right, dad. The second time he was like, no. 
to get out of here. Fuck off, Dad. I'm not making you any food. Then we get to what is... And he first... kind of slinks away, looking disappointed. And he to sun dies. <laughs> then he goes on to kill nine more people, all because of dinner. Yeah, why don't they just make him some food? Like, you'd, you'd think after the first eight people, the ninth person would just give him food. Yeah, just give him a snack. He's hungry. <laughs> so we get to what is personally, uh, what has sort of become my favorite vampire story. Or I didn't get a translate a pronunciation guide, but is spelled P-A-O-L-E, but it's Romanized and Westernized as just Paul. We don't know when he was born. Serbian What's his first peasant. name? What's his first name? Arnold. 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 Paul. Arnold. Arnold Palmer. That was what I was thinking too. <laughs> I don't think they're connected. That's, but... when it's ha- that's when it's half lemonade and half blood. Yeah, that's an Arnold Paul. <laughs> so Serbian peasant. We don't know when he was born. He died somewhere around 1725, and his years of active vampirism were 1725 to 1731. Once again, he's kind of lost to the modern myth of vampires, although we know about him because. Two Roman Catholic scholars, Dom Augustin Calme and Giuseppe Davanzati. Definitely said that right. Davan Davanzati. Davanzati would go on to write books about vampires, and they talked about his particular case. What I really like about Paul is he was a soldier in the Turkish Serbian army way back in the day, and during his active years in the military, he came back from war and he was very sad and depressed, although everyone said he was a nice guy, totally normal. He came from war, he bought some land, he found a wife, and his wife was obviously concerned. Like, why are you so sad? What's the matter? You need to talk to me. As a good wife does. And he was like, here's the thing, honey. When I was deployed with my regiment, I was attacked by a vampire and I followed it to its grave and I killed it. And I bathed my wounds in its blood, and then I ate its grave dirt. So I'm tr- hoping I don't turn into a vampire when I die. Awesome. Let's kiss. <laughs> and I was like, I <laughs> lost to time how his wife reacted to that. <laughs> I don't know. But I imagine it was like, oh, okay. She's like, thanks for telling me all that. You need to go <laughs> to, you need to go to, to 1725 therapy which is just whipping yourself (laughs) (laughs) but he was relatively normal for the rest of his life living his best serbian retired soldier life yep Uh, he was really well liked in the community and he dies just in an accident i think he falls off a ladder something super normal three weeks after he dies the townspeople begin to see him just around Four people who claim to have seen him die. And so the community leaders are trying to avoid a panic. Like, as he said he was a vampire. Is he a vampire? The community leaders were like, all right, we're going to cut this off right now. We're going to dig him up and we're going to show you he's not a vampire. So they dig him up. Sure enough, he's a vampire. Can't we have one town council meeting where we don't dig up a corpse? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They put a stake in him, cut off his head. And they burned his body. Six years later, 17 people in the same village just start to die mysteriously. So I guess the 1725 Serbian of the CDC dispatched my person with my favorite name and the regimental <laughs> field sergeant Johannes Fluckinger. <laughs> I love this name. He goes out to investigate and he determines very, very rationally that when Paul was a vampire and still running around, he bit some cow. Those cows became vampire cows. Then they were butchered and eaten by the townspeople, who then became vampires that way, which is not a method I was aware of. So we got so, vampire sharks, vampire dolphins, vampire cows. Apparently, according to the history, anything and anyone, squids. anything and anyone can and will become a vampire. <laughs> So naturally, Fleckinger's solution to this was to disinter all the people who had died in recent which I think amounted to about 40. 17 were found in a vampiric state, beheaded, staked, burned, and from then on, the town was fine. Yay! 
Dom Augustine and Giuseppe got a hold of this field report and wrote it down in their book. I don't know why I love this story so much, but it has all my favorite things. A guy with a funny name. (laughs) A guy who fought a vampire during combat. A vampire cow. Vampire cows. <laughs> it's got everything, and I'm so this sad that this story is was essentially lost and no one talks about it anymore. This would make a good movie. You know, you start with an introductory scene of like a of a soldier in some some ancient war, some old timey war, and he's you know hiding from the enemy in a in a trench full of corpses. But then it turns out one of those corpses is a vampire and attacks him, and he thinks he's done everything right. And he goes on, leads a happy life. And then that's sort of like the first, you know, 20 minutes of the movie. And then the rest of it is he comes back from the dead. His his uh, his vampirism was latent. It didn't kick in until after he died. And then he comes back to life and bites some cows. And those cows turn into vampires. And the cows rampage through the town, biting people. And yeah, that's I'd see that my movie. history. Uh, I would watch that movie 100%. It makes me think, uh, kind of in a messed up way, it makes me think of the film The Little Vampire, because there's vampire cows in that movie. Are there really? It made really me think are. of a, It made me think of the book Banicula, about a vampire oh, yeah. rabbit. <laughs> See, yeah, there's a there's vampire rabbits, too. Anything the little vampire, vampire. The Little Vampire is... Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a great film, only that I enjoy it immensely every Halloween. <laughs> and this kid becomes friends with a vampire and the vampire is weak from being hunted by a a vampire hunter and he's like i need a cow as i need to eat and he and his whole vampire family start just sucking the blood of these cows and there's just this repeat of a farm of the farmer who owns these cows like seeing his cows like running away from the light and hanging from this it's just like that's weird and he just leaves there is a, I remember in like the 90s, there was these reports of cows that were found with like their blood sucked out, exsanguinated. Yeah. That could have been vampires. We thought, the vampires we thought aliens. it was something, I say we thought it was something run of the mill like aliens, but could have been vampires. Could have been. Oh. Well, that was, that was really good, Deanna. Thank you for doing all that research. I learned a lot and I think our audience learned a lot too. I'm happy to do it. I was. I'm so glad I got to learn about the story of Arnold Paul. It's now my favorite thing. It'd be interesting to have, because I feel like the, just to tie it back to D&D one more time before we go, it's sort of like the the D&D archetype of vampires is the sort of aristocratic vampire. You know, the the Strahd or like the, the Vlad the Impaler or Elizabeth Bathory. But it seems like most vampires in history were just sort of regular people. Yeah, just sort of dudes living their life and all of a sudden they start biting people yeah and it's like do. why do they start with that don't, don't they wonder like well who turned peter blagojevich into a vampire who turned arnold paul into a vampire like they just start with that person like did aren't did peter blagojevich just become a vampire at just for no reason and then start biting people it doesn't add up i'm gonna need you to go back in time and talk to these people and explain to them their logic is faulty. I go back in time, they're going to be like, a woman speaking to me in this <laughs> devil's tongue? <laughs> She's not speaking old Romanian. Burn her at the stake. That's one of my favorite facts that I think about a lot is burning witches is mostly a European thing. Americans didn't really burn witches. We mostly yeah. Have. Hey, you know, whatever works. Whatever gets the job done. Maybe American whatever. witches just, American witches are just tougher than those flammable British witches. Just let, just thought about it. Witches and vampires, both susceptible to water. Uh, well, again, putting anything underwater for long enough is probably going to kill it, unless it's a vampire squid. In which case, that's where they thrive. <laughs> that Take case will drag you down. Drag you down and make you a vampire squid. They are notoriously violent. <laughs> they do attack <laughs> divers a lot. Is that why you don't? Is that why you're afraid of the ocean? You're afraid you're going to get attacked by a squid? I'm afraid I'm going to get attacked by everything in the ocean. I think you'll be okay. Someday you come visit me in California and we'll go out in the ocean. Where the only thing you have to worry about is pollution and garbage. 
and radiation from Fukushima and you're mercury really and also mercury. <laughs> you're really selling me on the ocean. And just like the byproduct of all the of all the drilling, offshore drilling rigs. Let's just retitle this podcast. Megan encourages Deanna's <laughs> philosophia. <laughs> well, it's good to have a thread to continue through the podcast. So hopefully we'll find something else for you. Find some more ocean related stuff you'd be afraid of next time. But until next time, thank you again, Deanna. That was excellent. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Next time, we are going to continue with vampires in pop culture, I believe. I believe that is our topic. Yes. Question yep. We're going to talk about sort of Dracula and where we went from there. Mm-hmm. And then we'll tie it all back together with some more with a deep dive into the various vampires of Dungeons and Dragons, how you can use them in your adventures and how you uh, can use them in your how you can build encounters around them, build stories around them. And I think it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah. We're going to take take a lot of these old stories and incorporate them into a new story. <sighs> Arnold Paul campaign. Arnold Paul returns. Arnold Paul returns from the, it doesn't have quite the same ring to it as Strahd von Zarevich, but still pretty good. He's got to say it with a stone. Strahd von (laughs) Arnold von Blagojevich. How about that? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Thank you again. Thank you everybody for listening and we will see you next time. See you next time. Bye.